Six months ago, I started working on a podcast about the future of public space. The goal was to talk to the innovators and disruptors of museums, architecture, theme parks, and universities, but how we can improve the way people gather and interact. And then we couldn't gather and we couldn't interact in person with anyone except the people in our households. And everything changed. In some ways, I think the show is even more important than ever because when we come out of this pandemic, we'll emerge into a completely new reality. And the curators of public space will have to adapt. And so we've shifted our focus to how do we adapt? How do we make public spaces even better once we can finally visit them again? What are the lessons we can take away from this pandemic? But to start, we have an episode that we recorded before we were all isolated in our houses. It's an interview with Jane Golden, the executive director and founder of Mural Arts. We talked to Jane about the extraordinary task of building a museum without walls and why that matters. The world has completely changed in the past six weeks. But the more than 3,000 murals that Mural Arts has created in Philadelphia are still there. And while every other museum is closed, people can still see this sort of public art. That's why we're sharing this episode now. And going forward, we'll use this podcast to talk about how those of us who work in public space can make our future spaces even more remarkable. When other people see this mural, I want them to, I want them to see decisions. How one decision can affect another person's life, can, can alter everything they got going on. One guy's decision ruined the whole family. One guy's decision landed him in prison. One guy's decision ruined another, uh, another guy's life. It ruined his life also. A mother lost her child. Another mother lost her child too to the prison system. There's so much in this in this one picture alone. It is deep. That's Michael Whittington. He's talking about looking at a mural called Forgiveness at 13th and Erie Streets in North Philadelphia. If you haven't seen the mural, this is what it looks like. Left side of the mural is a, is a prison watchtower. In the middle is Kevin. Right next to him is his mother. And next to her is a guy that's incarcerated with his back turned against them. And it's about a dozen doves flying Look like the sun rays is, is shining bright in the middle, and that's where the doves is coming from. It's like a dream and a nightmare. The guy with his back turned in the mural, the one who's in jail, that's Michael, or a version of Michael. In 2003, Michael Whittington did time for supplying the gun that shot Kevin Johnson. Kevin's injuries put him in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Three years later, Kevin died from complications from the shooting. Michael worked with the nonprofit Mural Arts to get this mural painted on the wall at 13th and Erie. Creativity is everywhere. Someone once described to me when I was walking into a maximum state prison, they said, you know what, Jane? Creativity, it's like wildflowers that grow in lots around the city. You cannot stop it. And it shows like the human spirit coming through. That's Jane Golden. She's the executive director of the Mural Arts program in Philadelphia. She worked with Michael to get that mural made. And that mural changed Michael's life. It changed the lives of countless others who worked on it. And it's changed the neighborhood where it was painted. But more on that in a little bit. This is Future Spaces, the podcast about how public space can transform the way we live, work, and learn. How public space can literally change a life. I'm your host, Josh Goldblum, the founder and CEO of the experience design studio, Blue Cadet. 
I spent over 20 years working with museums, cultural organizations, and brands to tell their stories in shared space. Art museums talk a big game about diversity in terms of who creates the art and who goes inside the buildings to see the art. But talking about diversity only gets you so far, and frankly, it's not enough. Jane Golden doesn't just talk. Mural arts is one of the largest public arts institutions in the world. It's the reason that Philadelphia has more murals than any other city. It's also the brainchild of Jane and her life's work. There's a lot that traditional art museums and galleries can learn from mural arts. But there's also a lot that local and federal officials can learn about how public art can change and inspire a city. We're an organization that's dedicated to providing every single neighborhood and community with public art. There's something delightful about going through a city and just coming upon something. If you've ever visited Philadelphia, then you've seen the murals. Some of them are massive, taking up entire city blocks. Super detailed, narrative, and mysterious. Others are fairly straightforward portrait murals of local celebrities like Dr. J, Kevin Hart, or Aretha Franklin, but also neighborhood heroes. Some murals exist along the highways, beautifying an otherwise stretch of bland road. Some of my favorites are just beautiful and abstract. Bands of geometric shapes, pops of super vibrant color. There are landscapes by artists that are Philadelphia famous, and then works by legitimate art stars like Shepard Ferry or Amy Sherald, Michelle Obama's portrait artist. And there are hundreds of murals from Philadelphia artists who would never have had the opportunity to create public art otherwise. I mean, I always refer to it as the autobiography of Philadelphia. I think it's so fascinating that way that you can go into almost any neighborhood and you're going to find out something new and unusual and unique about our city that you didn't know was there. After more than 30 years with Jane at the helm of Murillars, the city has over 4,000 pieces of public art. And I feel so lucky to have had that experience because now, legitimately, we could say, oh yeah, Philly is an outdoor museum and it's one that has real resonance and meaning for the people in our city. The idea that Philly is this big, open museum without walls is a nice one. And it makes sense on the surface. But actually, I'd say that in several key ways, what Jane and the Mural Arts team has created is very different than an art museum. It's an incubator for social change. It's hard for a museum to replicate because of the inherent structure of a museum, right? Some do it better than others, but it's like, how do they figure out a way to sort of open up their doors and allow for a knowledge exchange to happen, that there is mutuality? So I think the difference between us and an art institution, an art museum, is that they are wired to want to bring people in. And while they do have outreach programs, a lot of the outreach is to bring people in. We want to meet people where they are. This is why so many Philadelphia communities want mural arts in their neighborhood. The demand exceeds our ability to do it. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people everywhere are saying, wait a minute, I can have something in my neighborhood. I would really like that. People clamor for it as if they want, like, I want that pothole fixed, or I want the street better, or I want this, or I want that, and I want art. Sure, the art is usually beautiful, but it's the process of creating the art that changes lives. It's what brings the communities together and actually makes a real personal and civic impact. For many Philadelphians, the creation of a mural is the first time they've seen meaningful investment in their neighborhood in decades. First it was, oh, we're doing a mural and we would see great excitement around the mural. And then we would actually see the mural become like a catalyst for other changes in the neighborhood. People thinking about other city services, people who are on the margins feeling like, oh my God, my voice was heard, thank goodness, and now I can be involved. 
And over the years, it, we just started to build out our program in ways that would have great relevance to not just citizens, but the critical issues facing our city. And we saw things in very concrete ways change. This isn't a new thing. Murals on empty walls in cities. The idea of creating art where people live and work, creating art in communities that may have been excluded from the big prestigious art institutions. This is consistent with the history of muralism in the Western Hemisphere. We can go back to 1968 in Chicago. African-American artists who cannot show their work in galleries or museums decide that they're going to do their work outdoors. The federal government really supported artists by commissioning works for inside, but also public murals. And so when artists could not show their work, they took to the streets and they did murals about critical social issues, about civil rights, about the Vietnam War. It was an astounding time, and it was a major reclamation of public space. The subtext here is that we will not be shut out, our voices will be heard, and we're taking this right to the public. But let's just back up for a minute. Before the 4,000 murals, how did Jane get here? How did a Stanford grad who thought she was heading to law school end up commissioning murals in Philadelphia? Jane could trace it back to her time working at Mural Arts' predecessor. The best thing that happened to me was working for the Anti-Graffiti Network. Vandalism is one of our country's biggest problems today. Estimates for destruction to school facilities alone is over $100 million per year. And counting all acts of vandalism to public and private property, some experts push the figure to over $1 billion every year. Of course, a billion dollars is only money. But what about the tens of thousands of these young people convicted of these crimes? Back in 1984, Philadelphia had a huge graffiti problem. In response, the city increased regulations on spray paint and penalties on offenders. But they also did something that was a little unusual at the time. What they did was to offer those found guilty of vandalism the option to become an apprentice in the anti-graffiti network. There, they would work with and learn from professional artists. And their creative energy would be harnessed away from illegal vandalism and into publicly funded works of art. Jane, a young muralist herself, had just returned home from Los Angeles and was put in charge of this program. Even though I'd done murals in LA, it was very different to work along major corridors as opposed to being in communities and neighborhoods in Philadelphia and working with block captains and community leaders. What I learned is that it's critical to value the authorship of that community, to really listen, to be respectful, to step back, to not go in with your privilege or your know-it-all attitude. Like, it just can't work, right? I never, ever, ever could have learned what I learned without my colleagues who completely gave me access to the city in deep ways. Through these projects, Jane learned that in order for art to make an impact on the community, it needed to be a product of that community. We had a look at this like we weren't some savior coming in to deliver art. It's like easy to come in and do work. It's a lot harder to sort of have a paradigm shift and say, actually, we're going to include you in the process. This was going to be art that was co-created. The judgment of, oh, this is a struggling neighborhood and this is not. You know, some neighborhoods maybe were struggling more than others, true. But we were working with these fantastic, dedicated, amazing, mostly women who invited us in and gave us the scoop and told us about the community and the history of the neighborhood, who were doing great things and really scrappy and gritty. And so when we 
started to deliver art as a city service, it was always in partnership with the people who lived there. As the mural arts project grew in popularity, it spun out of the anti-graffiti network. It earned its own seat at the table as the mural arts program. All the while, Jane continued to fight that each project be grassroots from the bottom up. By 2004, 2005, we had a real vision of what this program could be, that we could live in the nexus of art and social change, that we could be in the middle of the public and the private sectors, the social, the civic, and the aesthetic, and that that area was really fertile ground for us. But... It wasn't without its critics. My friends who were artists were very critical of the body of work we were creating. And I was like, well, where do you live? Oh, Center City? Well, you don't get, you don't have a say in what happens at 20th and Diamond or 5th and Dauphin. It just, it's not your neighborhood. And there was like an inherent snobby, elitist judgment that I really resented. And the kids I worked with resented. And we all resented it. And we like just said, you know what? We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And that's what they've done for the past 25 years. Over that time span, other art institutions have started to catch on. And they start to ask Jane how mural arts has done what they've done. And so I feel so vindicated today with this whole notion of social practice. Like every museum is talking about social practice, process matters, community work. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where were you like 25 years ago when you judged us? I love it. I love it that it's like, ah, we were on the right path. Today, that path has led mural arts to become so much more than an organization that puts murals on buildings. Like the anti-graffiti network before them, mural arts is providing opportunities and jobs to people who ordinarily would never consider becoming involved in art as a profession. But it's done even more than that. Jane told me this story. I'd heard snippets of it on the news a few years ago. It's about a mural called Forgiveness at 13th and Erie Streets. So we work in the Philly prisons, and we used to have a program for kids who were going to be tried as adults. And one of the kids in our class ended up getting a shorter sentence because he supplied the gun in a terrible shooting. His name was Michael Whittington. You heard him in the beginning of the episode. Here he is again to tell you more of his story. Like Jane said, he was a kid tried as an adult because he supplied the gun in a shooting that left another kid paralyzed. He ended up in the juvenile block, House of Corrections. The block was, you know, being locked in... I see people going to art class and they coming in with comic books and, and crayons and markers. I'm like, well, I want to do that too. You know, all my friends was going and I was like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do the same thing. As Michael and his friends would find out, he was actually pretty good. I loved it. It, it was a escape, you know, from my reality at the time. It was, it just took me somewhere else and it was, it was lovely. Jane noticed Michael. Jane Golden said, when you get out, you have a job waiting on you. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) it kind of blew my mind. I'm like, for real? I always say this to kids when they're in facilities and they're about to get out, we'll hire you. So Michael came up to me because I happened to be visiting the class. He said, "Uh, did you, were you serious about getting a job at Mural Arts? I said, yes. So he did get out and we hired him. I was, what, 18, going on 19, haven't seen the streets in like two and a half years. I was happy, nervous, scared. I was the youngest person in the halfway house. So they was making bets, <laughs> like every day. Oh, he didn't run. 
I felt determined. I wanted to prove everybody wrong. Michael had just worked about a week. He came up to me and he asked if he could meet the victim of the crime. Now, the victim was a young man who had become a paraplegic due to the shooting. So, of course, it gave me pause. And I'm like, I had to see him. I had to see him face to face so I could look him in his eyes and tell him, like, I'm sorry. I ended up calling the mom, Kevin's mom, to see whether it was okay to bring Michael up to the house. And she said, I did forgive him. He, I saw some goodness in him during the court proceedings. And I was, I was explaining this to Jane, and um, she said, well, how come you don't just go out there and, and meet him? I'm like, well, dang. And she drove me up there. When we first pulled up to the house, um, Kevin's house, it was a nice-sized house. It was a big house. His family was waiting. and It was just like, it felt like a movie scene. <laughs> and Michael turned to me and he said, I'm not, I'm not getting out of the car. And I was like, oh, no, this car isn't turning around. And I said, actually, you're going to do something that maybe you haven't done before, and that's to show real courage, because see, you thought courage was providing a gun in a shooting, and I'm going to tell you that courage is getting out of this car and telling that young man how deeply sorry you are for doing this to him. And I just held on to the steering wheel like this. I said, and we're not turning around. We're not turning around. <laughs> that was the best thing she could have told me at the time. And so then he got out of the car and he went up and he started talking. I just went off to the side and talked to Kevin's mom. Since I was incarcerated, I wanted to look him in his eyes, like be right there with him and tell him how sorry I was. And when I got a chance to do that, I just felt the weight lifted off my shoulders. I just felt so much better than, than, than speaking to his mom face to face. It just felt, it felt great. It felt great. It felt, it felt so good. <laughs> And then Janice said, will come in, we'll have some dinner together. Me and Kev, uh, we got to talk, and we, we was playing PlayStation or Xbox. Then Michael wanted to go back again and again. And this was a very sort of deep friendship because they both had to overcome something. Michael had to be brave because he, you know, he didn't really at the end want to actually get out of the car and meet Kevin, but he did. And Kevin had to be incredibly forgiving because his life had been changed forever. Shortly after, Kevin would pass away due to complications of the shooting. When Jane told Michael that Kevin had passed, Michael was crushed. It just felt like, you know, like the world crashing. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, I felt so bad because it was due to the complications of the injuries and it, it hurt. He wanted her to soul and, you know, just looking at him, this he didn't want Kevin's legacy of forgiveness to die with him so he started to think of ways to honor him you know he didn't deserve he didn't deserve what happened to him he didn't deserve it at all so I wanted something to honor him and um had a good idea pitched it he asked Jane if they could create a mural honoring Kevin and his mother so I said, you know, that's a really beautiful idea so we constructed a project around forgiveness and we went wall hunting we saw a great wall at 13th and Erie. We knocked on the door, turned out it was a woman's shelter. And the people who answered the door said, what took you so long, Mural Arts? We've been on your waiting list, which I didn't know. And when I told them about the idea, they were like, well, we all have, we all have something we need to forgive. We're all holding in anger. And if we let it go, it would be liberating. So we 
ended up having this project where every Thursday night we painted in the community. People in the, the women's shelter joined us. We worked with the men at Greaterford Prison. We worked with kids at St. Gabriel's Hall. The mom, Janice, went and talked at the prison, at the detention center. She talked about the importance of forgiveness, about how they can change their lives now before it gets too far down the line. And so it became like this amazing project with literally hundreds and hundreds of stakeholders. When I first seen the forgiveness mural, I felt a little bit of everything. It was mixed emotions. Um, I was happy, but I was sad, the, the anxiety, the panic. But I was more happy than anything. I, it, it, was, it, was, it was good seeing Kevin's face and, you know, and being sad because I'm the one well, I played a part in him, you know, being in that situation. But I was I was more happy than anything that he was being honored. And on such a, a, a big wall like this. And they picked the, the perfect location and a perfect wall for this mural. And I was happy. I was happy. When I go by there now, it's this beautiful mural. You see Kevin, you see his mom, you see doves of peace, you see beautiful mosaic, you see a line of poetry written by the community. And it's so, like, everybody feels ownership about it. So much so when grass grows three inches, people call us, please, like, you have to come tend the garden. You know, like, can you do this? Can you put up a fence? Can we plant flowers? I mean, it just sort of, it had this impact that was contagious. It just shows how you just, you know, if you follow this path, like you're working in prison, you're working with people coming home, you're open to their ideas, the ideas can take hold in the community, it can get rooted in a really deep way, and then it can influence and inspire other people to think about what forgiveness means. I always wonder how was, you know, Kevin and Janice so easily, you know, they just forgave me and I, feeling that type of pain, that hurt. It's like how it, 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 it's like wearing tear. Like it, it, it'll get you. It, it, it corrupts your mind. It corrupts everything. And once you finally to just just let it go, like I forgive you, it all start to come together. Everything. Sometimes we take for granted that conversations around art are esoteric. That we talk about emotions and ideas when we talk about art. But Michael is also talking about something so concrete. This art is something he helped to create as part of a job as part of his career, a career he never could have imagined before going to prison. Not in a million years have I thought art would actually be like a career, like I would be doing this for work. Without mural arts, I wouldn't be here. Michael Whittington probably wouldn't even exist. This kind of art is providing opportunities and jobs to people who otherwise probably wouldn't be touched by an art institution. Here's Jane again. She says it much better than I can. You can't underestimate what it means for people who have been in the margins to be making a work of public art in, like on a street that's busy, that is saying something really substantive about our world. That says to someone, like, you matter, like, you count, like, you really are part of, of this world. I think it's great to give artists places to exhibit their work in galleries and museums, but I think it's like, we also need to compensate them and pay them and let them know they have real value in our society, that art matters. And if it matters, we need to show that it matters. But museums struggle with this, right? Because they're always trying to build cultural participation and diversity. 
but they have an inherent problem and that's they are a building somewhere, right? It's a facility and it's closed in. So how do you create some kind of equitable exchange between communities and this building? That's what museums should be talking about. How can we make sure art is touching everyone in the community, not just the people who have the time and money to pay admission? And how can art transcend the sanctified walls of a museum and transform the actual communities outside of the museum? The question I have for Jane is, can any city do this? Can every city do this? The secret sauce here is that we have had five mayors who have supported us and city council people. The city is only 30% of our budget, but it's really important. We have communities who trust us and respect us. And then we have a really robust artist community that's come up with us. So that's unique, I'm finding. But we can really push and challenge other cities to think about this model and how they can do it in their own way without being didactic or prescriptive. We don't want that, but we want to inspire them and then provide them with the space and the information so they could flourish. We need to be hyper aware of the impact that art has and can have in greater ways on our city. We need to hold on to that as we move forward over the next three, five, 10, 20 years. And Mural Arts wants to be at the forefront of helping other cities replicate their model. I would say first, if they can, to call us the Mural Arts Institute, really, and we would give them data. I mean, if they could work with us, great. If not, we could send them information about how we work. And we would advise them strongly to try to form a team of government, philanthropy, community, and artists to try to think about what are their goals and what are they trying to accomplish? Like, is it they want to do this because their main street has been decimated, people have moved out, and they want to revitalize it? Or do they have a, they're a city with a graffiti problem and they're trying to tackle that? Or do they really want art education in their schools? Like, it's very different. Like, so we would really push them about the goals. And then we would ask them, like, try to talk them through how they could build a cohort of people that could lead to what I'm going to call, like, sort of some sustainability. Because it's not hard to do a mural. Like, people can figure that out, right? You can find a little bit of money and do a mural project. What we're talking about is something different. So it's like they have to figure out a way that they can get rooted into the system. And that's why you've got to have money. You need money and support. And that has to come from the city. I don't care who it is. It could be the head of arts and culture. It could be a deputy mayor, a managing director. It doesn't have to be the mayor, although that would be great. And then some kind of funder, or it could be like the business association is going to commit resources to do a series of works of art with the community that are going to become a basis of tourism in this city, or going to become the basis of an anti-graffiti network, or going to you know, lead to more art in schools. I'm so cognizant of our journey and how we got connected right away with city, and then we backed up and wanted to grow, and we went to philanthropy, and then we went to business, and then we expanded our circle of artists. And the entire time, we kept making connections in communities. We were just vigilant about that. And we asked ourselves, what does relevance look like? How do you get people in a city to buy into the notion that art matters when there are other competing needs? We want people to know that we're responsive. We want people to know that we listen, our doors always open. I can't tell you the amount of people that call me personally about cracked sidewalks, 
dangerous houses to be cited for demolition, fountains and parks that are broken, a laundry list every week. Why? Because they know we're going to answer them. We're going to connect them to 311. We're going to connect them to Park and Rec or LNI because we have this history of being responsive. And that goes back to relevance, which goes back to why the 17 city council people in this city, when I testify for our budget, are like, mural arts does great work. You should get an increase. Not that that happens, but I'm telling you, it is always positive. But that comes at a cost. I mean, we can't go into it thinking that people just support art. They don't. They might, but we have to work really hard, like the little engine that could, to make sure that people know the value. And then how do you build on that? Mural arts may be a glimpse into what an art institution can be and who they can serve. Art institutions like museums struggle to be accessible and inclusive. Mural arts has in large part achieved this because of their willingness to collaborate with communities who host their art. They've told the stories of Philadelphia on their own walls, they make work that is inherently interesting and relevant. They also create spaces in the city that are beautiful and provocative. It isn't always easy and it doesn't work every single time, but when it does work, it can and it does change lives. Without mural arts, I wouldn't be here. Without mural arts, Michael Whittington probably wouldn't even exist. Mural arts change lives. Future Spaces is hosted by Josh Goldblum and is a production of Blue Cadet and Q9 Creative. Its executive producer is Joe Piazza. This episode was produced and mixed by Kevin Schmidlin with associate production by Angela Gervasi, editing and mixing by Max Graham, and special thanks to Jane Golden, Michael Whittington, and the Mural Arts team. For more from Josh and Blue Cadet, head to bluecadet.com and subscribe to Future Spaces on your favorite podcasting app.